welcome to ContourCast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my wonderful co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Um, I'm, I'm, very, I'm in very good uh, fettle at the moment, just back from uh, a wee holiday on the Canary Islands. Well, it was your honeymoon, right? It was indeed. Um, so I, I was getting that winter sun thing on the go. Oh, I've never done that before. It was it was incredible. I mean, they are four words that will make a lot of people hate you getting some winter sun. Yeah, I know. Um, I was going to get some winter gloom, right? I, <laughs> I, I think our first attitude was we were going to go to somewhere like Prague or Berlin, right? Um, but then Omicron happened and we were like, we were sort of almost kind of like fleeing across the continent away from the disease but by when when we were in canary islands it was like why on earth were we thinking of going somewhere else cold and miserable when yeah. we could have been going somewhere that was like 22 degrees yeah no i mean i'm fully in support of it if you can go away from here in the winter then you should absolutely get out i have unhealthy attitudes about how important it is to sun yourself right like see when I'm abroad in that I'm like <laughs> I'd sit out on the balcony in the morning getting sunned and Ruth would be like are you are you wearing sun cream and I, honestly I'm sort of like no I need all the radiation yeah it's otherwise it's not I'm not I'm not putting on sun I'm not excluding it's, it's like, I mean it's a cultural thing yeah for, for Scots to go abroad and sort of roast themselves like a rotisserie chicken yeah um so that was me out there roasting in my own juices <laughs> that's so gross <laughs> um and it was great like uh it was like i mean it's it it is how people depict it right do you know what i mean it was us and like i mean the one the one that did like this as well though there weren't too many young people there there were some right but there were a lot of oldies, mm. you know, my people um, in, in some senses. I mean, you know, I love the old as well. Mm. I love the elderly. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they're just, they're, there's no nonsense. There's no parties going on, keeping you up late at night. Ah. There's no... and, <laughs> did you get any good chats about Brexit? I dare say I could have. Um, but... oh, I mean, like, when I was on my honeymoon... Um, James absolutely spoke to a man in the airport queue about Brexit. All right. Um, and were they agreeing about how great it is? Uh, yeah, yeah. They were They were basically like, oh, I can see why it's a good idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but uh, I just, you know, it's just that it's, it's, I find that a better that kind of older tourist cohort you're not going to have stuff like people throwing up in the pool do you know what i mean ah no nah, more dignified behavior yeah yeah so i i enjoyed that about it as well They're very different from a kind of holiday i'd usually do but uh i'd highly recommend it thought it was great did the whole package thing as well oh were you all inclusive all inclusive well no, we did we did self-catering but, it, but we, it was like a package deal where you get the flights and the apartment. Oh, off. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me of that that Blur song. 
they did they did a song about package holidays I don't know, I was never really a Blur fan. It's that one, Girls Who Like Boys. <laughs> I mean, the song, Girls and Boys. Is that what it was called? I can't, I can't remember. I think it came out in about, like, 1994, so... Yeah. Uh, it got a bit of a package holidays in it. There's a, there's a line in it about following the hards down to Greece. So it's about that. It's about that kind of culture of like um, of like package holidays. That I suppose was booming then in the early 1990s. That's really when it was coming into its own uh, as a thing. Uh, so yeah, uh, but uh, you know it was great because uh, I am I'm, I'm a snob about stuff like this. I always you know, I'm one of these people who's like I need to read a book about where I am. Right, another classic Brits abroad kind of thing that. Uh, but the, what, there's not been a lot of what I would consider cool history in that part of the world, though. I mean, there, there's, there's quite a lot of stuff has happened, like it was important in the slave trade and stuff like that. Um, but I did end up reading uh, a novel by a guy who, who sort of was exiled there, a Portuguese writer called something Saramago called The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jose Saramago. Aye. Yeah, so, he wrote a book called Blindness, which is one of my favourite books. Uh, Ruth was reading that out there. So instead of reading a history book about the area, we decided we would absorb some of the local culture. He says, this guy, that he, he had to flee there, right, from Portugal. He didn't really. He just had threw it off because they didn't like his book about Jesus. But anyway. I mean, I have to flee a lot of situations in that that in those terms. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. Like, I absolutely have to flee this party right now. I have to flee this party because of my views on Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that's fairly likely, to be honest. Um, but I really enjoyed it. That book. I've not read Blindness yet. I'll give that a read. But he's a he's a gorgeous writer. Do you know he's one of these guys who and I love this about reading like a really good novel. Um, his way of writing starts to like infect your brain and you start thinking your thoughts in his idiom. Mm. Now, I really like that when you read someone like that who has a really poetic way with language. So all in all, yeah, uh, absolutely baked in my own juices. As I say, uh, sun, literature, uh, Brits abroad. Do you feel different now you're married? Um, uh, in a way, in a way, I mean, me and Ruth had been together for, uh, like quite a long time before we got married and, you know, we lived together for years. And so in a way, in a way, uh, do you feel different? Um, yeah, yeah, I suppose I do. Um, I suppose... But like James and I didn't live together really <laughs> for very long before we got married, and like a accidentally very trad move, and mm. um, actually more borne out by the fact that we are both completely neurotic people who need their own space to survive. Um, but yeah, so it's hard to separate out whether it's being married or uh, living together. Do you know what I mean? That's is making the difference. But I guess. For me, marriage means that, like, there's a commitment there to like to always work through stuff. Mm -hmm. 
like that there is nothing that is insurmountable that there is no problem to too big for for you to get over there is nothing necessarily unforgivable and you make that commitment to like work through difficulties but also to I don't know I think that there's a commitment to like celebrate each other's successes and like really have each other's backs and do you know what I mean when things get when things get difficult so I don't know I feel like it's the sense of life <laughs> lifetime commitment mm-hmm. um, which makes things different or gives it a different dynamic do you know what I mean it's not that like no one's just going to go oh fuck this and walk out and slam the door and then that be that do you know what I mean there's there's a bond there that you've both kind of like signed up to yeah uh and the cynics out there will say well we'll re- revisit that in 20 or 30 years that bit <laughs> we got points on our fourth fucking husbands <laughs> <laughs> James fully dies in mysterious circumstances. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um I no, but I agree. I, I think I think because at least in kind of um soap operas and sitcoms, uh the the male fear is always supposed to be the finality of the situation, right? You're abandoning the thing that was supposed to make you a man heretofore which was your bachelorhood, right? Um, I have to say that's caused me no anxiety at all. Mm. Uh, if anything, that would sort of arrive as a kind of uh, relief. Relief, yeah, totally. Yeah. Although, um, and maybe we could talk a bit about this because we've got a kind of like free-floating agenda today. Um, but those statistics about uh, the new bachelorhood that were just released is this a a sexless bachelorhood yeah yeah no it's um so it's fascinating i've heard people so let me let me find the um the graph so it was published in the washington post and it was um titled well no the 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 poll was called Young Male Virginity on the Rise. The share of men aged under 30 who report zero female sex partners since they turned 18 has risen from 7%. And I mean, it's 7% in 1989, but it's pretty much steady mm. with like slight ups and downs until 2008. And then 2008 to 2018 it rockets from 8% to 27%. That's just incredible. I, I, I mean, I, I think it is completely incredible, especially when, you know, this is a time, like, particularly in the US, where, I mean, I, I suppose all over the kind of, like, Anglophone world that a religion is waning, like, and people's commitment to, like, religiosity is declining you know this isn't coming from you know these young men are not all running away and look joining the priesthood or are terrified of having um, a sexual experience because they might go to hell or you know you don't have sex before like that's not what's happening here and we also live in an incredibly permissive society where you know um sex is seen as something very I, I mean I think that it's 
there's a lot of liberalism about it that you know it's not a taboo subject that um you know sex work is is a legitimate form of work and regardless of what your views are on that you know they I think they were not the same views that were dominant in society as in 1989 when, yeah. when those rates were at eight percent so I think that generally speaking society's views on sex and sexuality have become more open so for that statistic to then jar up against these things I think is very interesting um yeah and as for I mean, for more, maybe things are changing slightly in recent years, and I wonder if this is part of what's driving that figure up. But certainly, for much of the time that you talked about, you know, from the end of the 1980s and into the 1990s, there was a great fear in the 1990s about raunch culture, right? Do you remember that phrase? It sounds yeah. so quaint now, right? But even into the early 2000s, you had books coming out by feminists called thing, you know, called. Um, female chauvinist pigs that was kind of one of the biggest yeah, I remember that popular feminist books of its time now seems completely outdated like completely dated in just a, a few years and in that period in the 90s and early 2000s at least but I, to be honest from what I can see it's still the case there's actually a degree of stigma about not having sex I and mean, when we say it's a permissive society that kind of implies that people are being allowed to have as much sex as they want it's not even that it's <laughs> you if if you want to be considered a normal person let alone a cool person you need to be having sort of promiscuous sex when you're young that's very much the social pressure as i as i understand it so it's quite remarkable that well over one in four i mean is that the figure what was it 20 27 percent i mean it's an american um an american study yeah uh, i would be it and I think be, you're right. And it's from 2018. So it's like... <sighs> and, and by the rate that that's going up in 10 years, you would assume that it was, you know, higher than that now. Yeah, and I think that it's pretty clear that um, a lot of American cultural exports become the, the dominant things in British society. So even though it's an American study, I wouldn't be surprised if this, a similar pattern was replicated yeah. in the United Kingdom. So that see see those eight percent who were once sort of men and is this is hang on a minute, give me the statistic again. Twenty seven percent haven't had sex before what point in their life? And um, under thirty. Under thirty. Like so, basically, um, men under the age of thirty who report zero female sex partners since they turned eighteen. Um, I assume that that eight percent before the skyrocketing figure were largely a part of a minority current which has always existed in American society and still exists um, but is smaller of people who take their vow to not have sex before marriage very seriously like there's a minority evangelical current in American society you know this the, the silver ring movement and stuff like they take a celibacy ring and stuff uh, notoriously I mean, a lot of those kids are at it, right? <laughs> Apparently, when they catch one of those kids, they tell them to take the ring off, which is pretty cruel. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's just such a remarkable development, that. And of course, it's not, America's not the first country. Some people call this like Japanization um, because Japanese men, young men, have been drifting away from 
uh, sexual encounters with young women, but also from female company uh, and, and ultimately from the company of others uh, to a huge like, extent. There is a whole, the scene now is, I think, um, I can't remember what it is, but there's a Japanese word that sort of describes them as a kind of underclass in Japanese society of men who refuse to engage in society, refuse to meet women, refuse to get a job, um, and live with their parents. And this is a huge phenomenon in, in Japan. Um, and it's partly related, of course, to Japan's long-term economic stagnation. The Japanese economy is a sort of, is bizarre, it's a real mystery. Um, but it has these kind of chronic problems. It's hard for people to enter the labor market and so on. But it's obviously as well part of a much wider phenomenon of kind of alienation from the social life of, of capitalism. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that is the, the important takeaway for me from this graph is that, I mean, it's really, it is nothing to do with the fact that, you know, sex, sex is no longer taboo or, um, you know, that people are more God-fearing. Like not, none of these things are the reason for that. But it's also not, I mean, uh, the incels aren't right <laughs> like it's important to say like we we get this obviously quite wrong it's not I think that they they always like throw out this mad statistic about like how women are having all this sex with particular types of men but not those men right that and that that just isn't borne out like I think that um women's sexual experiences remain fairly steady I'm mean, in fact like I remember reading that in 2005 and 2010 that like women were having less sex and remember mm. like these these changes are coming round about the periods of the financial crisis I mean where people are like pushed into a greater precarity yada yada right so I I get that 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 may be sort of um it may be the same for both sexes but I think as you say the example of what's happening um to young men in particular in Japan um is very very telling and actually we should be looking at this development or this trend as a sign or a symptom of capitalism that it's actually it's the it's a sign of serious and quite depraved alienation like this is what this is about is like deep deep alienation um you know young people like being denied certain normal life experiences perhaps economically, but there's also something that's happening, I think, where more and more people are living their um, entire lives online. Mm. Um, I'm not really sure that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, I would say it's probably quite alienating um, in terms of like what it, what it means to be human. Um, but I think that this is where a lot of the, um, the other like sort of, the, the other subcultures around sex and gender emerge from because if you're having your only sort of like sexual encounters on the internet and you're an avatar then it doesn't really matter like you know whether you're male or female or whatever do you know what I mean these things don't really matter in that context if you are living out your sex life online and I think that that's becoming increasingly the, the option for young people, especially, do you know what I mean, like the, over the last two years when everyone's been shut inside for so long. God, yeah. And the, um, 
there's a guy um, who I talk about. Uh, I'm sure I've talked about him before on here. Uh, Mark Leela, who's a really interesting sort of liberal thinker about like um, the consequences of cultural and social change. And he says there's always the way that modern kind of reactionary thinkers work is that we live in a society which is so rapidly transformative of social norms and cultural codes um, and sort of technological interactions with society that um, every new deluge sort of leaves behind uh, a new Eden in relative, in sort of like um, in recent history. So modern conservatives, are many of them are sort of transfixed with the idea that we lived in a dramatically different society um, in the 1950s, right? You often hear this, like, oh, let's go back to the 50s when, when things were okay. Of course, in the 1950s, conservatives thought that they lived in a period of peak degeneracy and so on. And it's also true uh, of liberals who seem to think that, like, uh, <laughs> You know, the 2012 Olympic ceremony in London was the peak of human civilization or something. We've since gone drastically wrong. In much the same way, you can well imagine, and, you, and a lot of kind of culture war debates are now structured like this, people just saying, well, the quote-unquote raunch culture of the 90s was the healthy dispensation. And the, and, the, and the people who are kind of fapped to bits on the internet are the alienated, like, you know, freaks. Yeah. But really, what, what you have here is two deeply alienated ways of interacting with human sexuality. Totally. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, but I think that this type of, like, reactionary nostalgia, you know, it goes far beyond the culture war as well. Um, and it's not just conservatives that are guilty of it. Um I, I saw a really, really grim thing the other day on Twitter. Um, I can add that to the long list of really grim things you've seen on Twitter. But I can't remember as a journalist had tweeted a, a poll and it was in the, like, the height of uh, Johnson's, you know, is it a party, is it not a party, all that sort of bit that's been going on. Um, which I, I mean, I totally see why people are angry. I just cannot motivate myself to feel anything other than flatline about it. Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, I just, I always felt like these people were taking the piss. Like all politicians are taking the piss. Mm. Um, anyway, this journalist had tweeted, if you could drop one of the last four prime ministers of the United Kingdom into 10 Downing Street today, who would it be? And of course the options are David Cameron, Theresa May, Gordon Brown, or Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess, I didn't see the outcome of the poll. I saw the poll, I didn't see the outcome. I'm going to guess that the person who won is Gordon Brown. Oh, spot on. Because um, it's now a thing that centrist types, journalists and academics and stuff like, like politics adjacent parts of the middle class have this weird theory now. Absolutely. We, Gordon it, Brown was the was a man who should have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
the man who should have been king, but we, the foolish people, discarded him for trivial, stupid reasons. Oh, no, we, the people, discarded him for one thing and one thing only, and that was calling Gillian Duffy a bigot. Yeah. Like, that's actually, but that's the that's what's out there now, is that yeah. because he called that woman a bigot, that's what did him in. Yeah, 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 no, I mean, he was struggling before that. I mean, I, he was That's doing- why. That's why he went to our fucking house. I'm oh, sorry, because no one's seen the thick of it. Like, that's literally, right, Gordon, you need to get to the coalface. Uh, wait a minute, did that coalface episode, so this is the episode where a woman keeps shouting at the minister, have you ever had to clean up your own mother's piss, right? That came out before the Duffy incident. Did it? If it if it did, that's remarkable. I'm gonna. I, I think we should look that up. But <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll get on. I, I didn't realize that that was a commentary on Brown. Um, but uh, no, it's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, God, and- I've like I've just googled it right. Like obviously, Gillian Duffy is now Rochdale's most famous pensioner, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like. Um, you know, this is the row that uh, the row that followed all but destroyed Gordon Brown's political career. Oh God, I don't uh, really think that happened. Bigot um, gate ten years on. Um, no, I remember. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't. I remember someone telling me off for laughing about it hysterically at the time and saying, "Well, you know, it means David Cameron's going to get in." Um, but I, I think I've said this on the podcast before. I couldn't stop laughing at the dismissive, like tone of his voice once he was back in the car. <laughs> and the thing that the thing that he said about Gillian uh-huh. Duffy, which was my favorite political criticism of people in general, right? Yeah. Whatever that, whatever the political but view. See, the thing is, like, I like regardless of whether you agreed with Brown that she was a bigot or agreed with Duffy that she was just expressing legitimate concerns, like whatever. It was the the beauty of that moment was like how human Gordon Brown suddenly uh, became. Like this man who had seemed out of touch, who like you know all the stuff that had not been able to smile. Suddenly, like he's literally just left our house. He's in the car and he's already bitching. I'm like, <laughs> this is real. <laughs> this, is, this is the real bit. I bet that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, see if he didn't go around all the time pretending to be a kind of elder statesman. People would have probably heard that and said, yeah, that's what I'm like. Do you know what I mean? But it was just the way when they were driving away and he goes, he, first of all, he's trying to blame other people. He's going, who put me with that woman? He's already trying to get <laughs> someone. One of his poor aides is about to get chewed out. Who put me with that woman? And then, uh, and then you hear an aide say, what did she say? And he goes, oh, everything. <laughs> I love that. You can hear how like worn down his soul is after like 20 years of frontline politics. It's just oh my god, it is. It is before. It is before no, the, the episode of the thick of it. Is before Life Billy is Duffy. Before. Yeah. So the episode is of course called <laughs> The Rise of the Nutters. Yeah. Um and it's 2007. So there you go. Um, but and if you remember in that episode of The Thick of It, uh, ultimately they managed to shake the piss woman off by, uh, by pretending, well, by claiming that she's a candidate for the BNP. So it's even closer. Do you know what I mean? 
Like that is how you disable a random member of the of the working class electorate. You just say they're racist. Like that's that's the, the way you deal with it. This I mean satire is officially dead. Like you couldn't like Amanda Ritchie couldn't you couldn't write that now. Well like, Amanda Ritchie tried and failed to write present politics. Yes. So he um First of all, he said quite correctly he couldn't do the thick of it anymore. The weird thing about him is I think in a sense he didn't really understand his own joke, right? Because what he's criticising in the thick of it is the character of political centrism, is that kind of late New Labour thing where it's so apparent that no one has any political ideas, everything's being run by wonks and hacks. Um, and So that's the joke, right? is the hollowness of contemporary politics. What happened in the years after with things like Scottish independence, Corbyn, Brexit, right? And Junucci, like other members of his class, lost his mind. And part of his response to that situation, by the way, was the extremely good film, The Death of Stalin. Yeah, so he that was genuinely funny. Yeah, it was very funny. It's very good and it's very dark and stuff as well. Um, but uh, he said, well, he became interested in the subject matter of Stalin because of the rise of figures like Corbyn and, and Farage, right? And I was like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Two people who could not be less comparable to Stalin, right? Um, so, yeah, so even he, you know, uh, a, a brilliant writer, though, undoubtedly is, really struggled to keep pace um, yeah. with the situation. This is also, like, why writers like Chris Morris like have sort of gone into other projects because you can you just can't do political satire anymore mm. I mean I would have said that like I mean David Cameron and the pig let's not forget right when there was that like weird moment where a Black Mirror episode became reality like I think that satire started to be very difficult yeah writers. yeah once it once it kind of meets in the middle um it, it's definitely also po like pol political life is now beyond satire would you like me to give you an example of this yeah again let me open up my bulging file of terrible things i've seen on twitter there was uh someone tweeting about <clears throat> pretty proud of my undergraduate porn studies syllabus Oh, I saw this. Go on. Here's um here's our reading list thread, right? So this is a university course in undergraduate porn studies, whatever the fuck that is, right? Um, <laughs> I, I assume it's pretty clear. Uh, what it's it's right? a joke about students waiting to happen, isn't it? Like, I know. I know. Remember when people used to say to you things about, "Oh, you're watching Countdown all all day," right? Yeah. That's so tame, man. I remember, like, oh, I, what are you doing? A degree in drinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, that's well, like, actually, <laughs> and technically, yes, right? But <laughs> actually, I've wanked my way through three years <laughs> of university. Since you ask, I don't go to the pub because I don't like to meet people in the real world. I've got my porn studies. Right. Uh, um, it, it's when it gets to week six's reading list that you really realise that satire is finished because there's a <laughs> there's a, a um, one of the, com the compulsory readings is 
Uh, selections from Jones Camming Lee's quote, come guzzling anal nurse whore in feminist porn book. I just like the whole debate aside about like pornography and sex. How is that not performance art? I but mean, it's real. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of the time that George Galloway shouted spunk loving sluts in, um, in Parliament. Um, he was afforded that opportunity because someone he was criticizing owned the title uh, <laughs> alongside several newspapers. Uh, he owns. He owns. Oh no! It was. Um, it was like a satellite TV show called. Uh, there was one called like Asian Babes and another one called Spunk Loving Sluts, and you can still find little clips of George Galloway bellowing that uh, in the House of Commons. Um, except that he was doing it to because he's slightly kind of morally puritanical to reprimand some Tory for owning this. Uh, this uh, this TV channel. Yeah, now spunk loving sluts is like on the curriculum. And now it's on the cur- a prog- a progressive curriculum at like a liberal arts college in America. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's truly truly bizarre. Um, I mean, I really do think that, particularly after the pandemic, the fact that everyone is so terminally online is a really bad thing for for politics yeah and i don't i don't I have no idea how you get out of that i had a lengthy conversation with someone recently who pointed out like see by the way see when um i saw mark zuckerberg mincing about in something called the metaverse i literally do you know what i've actually since realized that i'm actually deploying real um i don't know what you would call this like the psychological thing where i sort of I detached from the situation. Like I literally th- said, I'm not thinking about that, right? I've never read anything about the metaverse. It took me months to ask someone what it is. I'm horrified by it. Like, I saw I- an article, maybe, I mean, it sounds like a BBC headline. Um, what is the metaverse in images? Like, so I think it probably was like on the BBC website. I did not click on it. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in what the metaverse is. It's over for me. And I, I just think, I don't understand why that isn't literally 100% of people's attitude, right? The whole idea of the metaverse, as I understand it, is that it's going to become like, you're going to become even more integrated into the internet. Why is that a good thing? Why would anyone want that? I can't, I cannot understand why. And it's, but it's also like, oh, it'll give you this kind of like, even kind of closer contact to all the sort of content that you like. <laughs> How much, I, honestly, at times it's like, you, you actually feel disgusted by it. It's like, how much fucking content do you people make? I, like, I, I mean, I don't want any more content. I, I mean, Just before, like, we started doing this pod, I have, like, marked my Twitter as, like, I'm on hiatus from the fucking internet. Like, honestly, I just need a break from content. We are seven and a half billion content pigs. Like content hogs with our, our mouths constantly attached to the to the giant teat of the internet, right? Just content loving sluts. Content loving sluts. That is we're just getting pumped, pumped full of content. <laughs> bust. And I just do you know what I mean? It's like I've already got that thing, right? Uh like I lost a bit of weight for the wedding. 
I don't dare to look at the at the scales now because I've already entered into a kind of week of Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Mince pies, you know, the the chocolates and the uh, and the mulled wine, and I already feel sick. Like it's it, like Christmas is already running in my bloodstream as a mix of sort of just syrup. I feel like I'm, I'm made of syrup. That's but that's also how I feel about the internet. I just don't understand how anyone could want to gobble down more of that. It's far too much. It's far. We we are saturated. Uh, I want out. I don't want to go deeper in. I, I don't want to go deeper down the rabbit hole and see will, how how content obese I can become. <laughs> I mean, I see that sensation you're talking about. I wonder if any listeners have experienced the same thing. Because I noticed it earlier that I had been out for most of the day uh, speaking to normal, like, human beings, like, face-to-face. I came back home and then I sat on my phone for about 40 minutes. And just felt all this scrolling, away. Right? And then I was suddenly like, oh, I feel really sick again. And I couldn't, I didn't connect it straight away. But I've been having these like intermittent bouts of nausea. And I think it's actually I'm overdosing on content. Mm-hmm. And like that shit, like it goes for your dopamine. Like you actually yeah. get hits from it. And then it's like anything else, you get withdrawal. And you need you need more. You need yeah. more to get the same high. Yeah, I've I've had enough internet for this year. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely, I genuinely wouldn't be against a society where the state can step in and say we're redirecting, you know, investment into other areas. The internet is about as developed as we need it in many of its spheres. We're not going to have a metaverse because no one needs that much content. What about this as an idea, right? If there was to be like my very benevolent dictatorship, mm. what you would do is you can have internet unlimited fucking internet everybody should be able to have internet but it switches off at 10 o'clock at night right you just get the you remember like the old telly thing your (laughs) parents would talk about like or like even when we were like teens you would bbc2 would switch off for the night and you would just have teletext pages Mm. on a rotation oh do i remember that yeah yeah so that's what it would be maybe like the internet would get switched off at 10 10 o'clock everybody's had enough content for the day and there's just some teletext pages um i I mean i I know that they're introducing kind of measures about like this in china um are they (laughs) sorry (laughs) so there you go you found your your motherland (laughs) Um, well they're, they're giving kids three hours a week to play video games online um well, the thing is, right, then the Chinese state actually say this. I think may have talked about this. Um, they're saying things like, so they are, they've, they've basically launched a kind of crackdown on late capitalism, right? I mean, albeit that it's the most dynamic center of capitalism in the world today. But they, they've decided, they've looked at America and said, we're not going to have our kids turn into that, right? So they've restricted video game hours for children. Right, so I mean, literally, you 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 have three hours, and you can use them or not, but you get kicked off the internet. Right, I don't know how they're doing this. Um, they're also 
<laughs> this is quite grim. They are um, they're they're now monitoring content on the internet, on TV, and elsewhere to sort of uphold masculine values for men. So they're they are forbidding you from sort of feminizing, um, or or they're just trying to discourage you from doing that. This is part of their whole like um, social credit worldview. It's about how you incentivize, as they see it, good behavior. I mean, it is sinister. Right? I mean, there's no doubt about that. But that this this just forms part of. Uh, I was reading a really interesting article about this in the Financial Times today. Um, like apparently, like they're saying, people in the Chinese government are becoming more and more loud in their claims that um, uh, China is on the rise and America is declining. Um, uh, it was a speech uh, by Xi Jinping. Uh, where he said this, and that's not uncommon in the, the speeches of the kind of president, presidential figure, where he says the West is declining, you know, the East is rising. But this is now being said by Chinese government officials in communications with the US government. So Chinese diplomats <laughs> go into negotiations with American diplomats and say to them, remember, we're on the rise and you're falling. Right. Whereas I don't know if that's a mode of like psychological warfare or something, right? Probably. <laughs> but and the point that um uh the Financial Times was making is like, well, maybe that's overstated, but and I think it is, but you'd need to look at America and China today, and I mean in the last week, to see an enormous contrast, just enormous. So in the United States, there's been a few studies come out. I don't know if you've seen this of quite senior figures in the intelligence scene saying that um, some kind of civil war is a distinct possibility. Now, you have to ask, is this about fear about, say, the return of Trump, right, and its implications? But some of the kind of academics and stuff who are saying this are, are saying things which are not too unbelievable, I think, at this point, right? So they're saying it's not going to be a civil war like the last US civil war, where parts of the country formally secede or anything like that. But what they're saying is, what if things like the mass shooting outrages that are just permanent in American society now morph into a kind of permanent state of violent unrest where various sort of armed militant factions are perpetually committing sort of violent attacks on each other? So that's the kind of fear. The, the fear is that polarization in the American population which has exploded since the early 1990s is going to lead to a kind of permanent state of tit-for-tat violence distinct but 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 it would have like some of the patterns of kind of the later stuff that happened for example in the troubles right where it kind of increasingly lost the political content and the attacks became as kind of tit-for-tat sort of thing and at the same time in america so you have an utterly polarized population, violently polarized increasingly, and you have uh, a ruling party who I think you, could, you would have to say the Democrats are now. I mean, I think the capitalists trust the Democrats probably a bit more than the Republicans because of Trump's seizure of the Republican Party, who can't pass their main items of legislation. They can't pass the kind of stimulus packages that American capitalism needs to compete with countries like China. So Joe Manchin, who's um, a senior figure on the right of the of the Democratic Party this week, blocked the, the Build Back Better, which is like a two trillion stimulus package, um, on 
grounds that remain frankly mysterious. There's a claim made by a few that um, this is a, a system in America called the rotating villain, right? Which is that presumably this guy, Joe Manchin, might be on the way out of politics and business lobbies and various kind of establishment forces in and around American politics, um, you know, will seize on a guy like that and say, like, you do our bidding, right? It will fuck your career, but you're on the way out anyway. And presumably there will be some kind of reward for him. Um, and they'll pick variously from Democratic or Republican senators to spike <laughs> various things that are going through that they don't like. So that is a that is that is what it looks like when you have a paralyzed, rubbish, dysfunctional political uh, system. Uh, I mean, Biden's supposed to be a candidate of stability. He can't create stability. He just can't do it. And uh, in Beijing, they must just be laughing their heads off. I mean, they just must be just laughing their heads off. I mean, I think that to sort of dial back a bit, like, on that conversation um, about, like, Chinese controls on the internet and, you know, trying to uh, build a defence against late capitalism um, whilst remaining the most important capitalist power now. Like I think that that is that's that's fair. Like that's the direction that um, the world economy is going in. Um, I mean, at least, <laughs> at least in trying to like create those ballasts, um, they are rejecting American cultural exports, um, which you know the UK has not been able to do. We do we just like take any old shite that comes from America and swallow it up. Like we've, we've, I mean, we've got, we've talked about that so many times on this podcast, um, but I think it's interesting, like this developing sense of the, the kind of the, the decline of America, the culture war, particularly, um, and other like European cultures' reaction to those exports. So this big debate that's happening in France right now. I don't know if you followed this, but well, I mean, your, your wife's modern languages, isn't it? She speaks French. There's a big debate that's happening at the moment about the introduction of pronouns. Right. Changing the pronouns in French, which I assume is similar to Spanish, where there's a, a masculine oh, and a feminine. feminine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this has become a huge debate in French society. Um, and then really at its core, it's about, I think, like the, um, the discourse of the academy, um, particularly like the American, American elite universities, how widespread this has become um, and like how much it's impacting on, I mean, you know what the French are like. Yeah, yeah. they're very I don't want anyone fucking with our yeah. language. I mean, the last big debate in French was about the word podcast. <laughs> all right yeah yeah um so but what so what what is is a faction pushing to kind of remove that gendered quality from french language yeah yeah there is i, I presume french wouldn't work without it um i mean there's like there's a few articles given examples of what could be used instead 
Um, do you know what I mean? Like that there's actually like a, a pronoun that could be used in French that didn't have a gender attached to it. Mm. But I mean, see at the end of the day, do you care? No, but it's also that the weird thing is people seem to think that they can change language. You can't, you cannot manufacture a change of language that simply. Languages do change over time. But they, but, it's because they're, they're spoken. Yeah, it's because they're spoken exactly. and they organically change and, and move over, over time. But attempts to, to forcefully change language are notoriously weak. Like it's, it's very difficult for some kind of centralised decision to be made and then everyone transforms the language. Like the communicative capacity of, say, the university sector isn't that strong. It doesn't, it's not talking to most of the population. So it's like the stuff that, you know, people say, like, um, there was a mood, maybe it's departing right now, I don't know, in academia to start referring to people of a Latin American heritage as Latinx, right? Um, that's something that just came out of nowhere. Like it, it, it doesn't have any actual real roots in, in these communities. Um, and like a tiny proportion of people in America use the word Latinx, they're all white, yeah. right? So yeah. what you have here is, is that attempt to, to force a change in language towards what I presume they thought was a more progressive form of language. The why, I have no idea, right? But it's taken up only by the people, by its progenitors. It's taken up only by people who, who think it's a good idea in the first place. It's not just that they think it's a good idea. It's like, this is literally the language of the elite. Yeah. Like, that's what this actually is. Like, academic language or modifying a language to fit a type of, like, academic viewpoint. Like, that is this the behaviour of the elite. It's trying to develop a language of the elite. And the problem like this I think that the stuff around language here like gets to the absolute crux of the culture war that no matter which like basically if you are on the conservative side of the culture war or if you're on the progressive side of the culture war and I mean like small c conservative like on whatever issue it might be literally no side can win right the culture war is a completely unwinnable one it's not like class war, right? Because you're actually talking about forces there. The culture war is just like two groups of people, sometimes one of which will make a symbolic victory over the other, but that actually a lot of it is quite meaningless. And the liberal ideology needs both of those sides to continue the culture war yeah. in order to reassert its dominance time and time again. Both, both, both sides need each other. Very, very. Both sides need each other, but the whole like liberal ideology needs the culture war. Yeah. Do you know I mean, like this is, this is what it really comes down to is that, okay, so in the culture war, you kind of have these, uh, these binary debates about, um, well, it's an example, vaccinations. Right. So like mandatory vaccinations, let's say. Right. And this is do I mean, like regardless of whatever your view is or my view is like on mandatory vaccinations, there will be a group of people who say the morally right thing to do is for everyone to be mandatory vaccinated because it's the only way to be safe. Mm -hmm. More often than not, I would say that this is seen as the left position. 
and for anyone listening like I'm sort of doing scare quotes in the air there and people saying no absolutely not this is um, an infringement of of liberty that's seen as the the right-wing position literally neither of those positions have anything to do with the ideologies of the left and the right there's like zero zero nothing (laughs) to do with to do with any of that but like what's happening is like these are both aspects of liberal ideology like the culture war is not between left and right it's not a battle between like socialism and like reactionary conservatism is not that it's between two different interpretations of the liberal hegemon so and this is this is how you get a situation where like people who are anti-vax will talk about it's george orwell's 1984 their claim is never um well it's obviously not the claim that someone who is like meaningfully conservative at the start of the 20th century would have made right um it's not the kind of claim of uh no one says you're trying to give me a vaccine um but i want to remain lord of my household in a strictly hierarchical society god didn't take a vaccine god doesn't want this it's the devil's work you know um etc etc right you're trying to corrupt the traditional structures of society what you have instead is like people saying uh you know i want to be free to do what i want uh with my body in society etc etc which is an attitude they've been taught a long time by like the liberal hegemonic ideas of our society and another group of people i mean who 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 sort of do the kind of um uh the sort of positive liberalism thing of well sometimes that involves say a common state measure that protects us all or whatever i mean in a weird kind of way the debate here and in so many other areas has never moved beyond that classic debate within liberalism between negative and positive liberty right so which is like the first thing you learn in like politics class at university that there's this or like philosophy that there's this debate in liberalism between positive and negative liberty and that's the only debate we seem to be having over and over and over again um and it's a trap and it's but the thing is as well is that um it's traditionally when we talk about the left and the right um both socialism and conservatism traditionally were sort of had a kind of ambivalent attitude towards those that debate within liberalism and we now ended up in a situation where there's not a distinctive socialist orientation on any of these questions because of their origin in in, within the liberal paradigm yeah but it's also the case that i think particularly since the 1980s that the left has won a number of um symbolic or cultural victories um when it comes to language um, when it's come to gender, do you know what I mean? There's a lot of, there are, there are some symbolic victories, but the problem is, is that we don't actually have any strong, organized, like working class <laughs> political institutions anymore in order to fight for economic victories. Do you know what I mean? So I, I do feel like maybe it's not so much a, a failure of of the left I don't necessarily think that's what I'm trying to say I think I'm just trying to point out that the culture war has been going on for a long time Um, you know there's always been these types of debates but I think that the 
like factors like the internet, um, like the kind of the the exportation of the like academic language and like the ideas of the academy into mainstream society, um, and the what was the the third one? Yeah, basically there'd be no institutional power economically or little institutional power um, economically for securing economic victories for the vast majority of people and um, I think that that's that's what's exposed a lot of the cracks yeah and of course in the meantime those those sort of partial symbolic victories that you talk about with the left have been incorporated deep into uh, the kind of managerial assets and capacities of both the kind of private system and the public sphere into public institutions and 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 so on, and it, you know we're now in a situation where it's been you know the decline in trade union membership uh, in Britain is about forty five years uh, on the trot right so we're now we're talking about a very extensive period in the in the decline of working class institutions. And most people's vision of left-wing politics, is the, it's the famous point that Marx makes about, um, you know, in 18th Brumaire, uh, of each generation um, sort of play acts in the clothes of, of the past generation. It's the only way it can think about politics. You can't imagine the future, really. All you can do is draw upon the past. And everyone does that to equip themselves with the weapons to fight today's battles. Well, people of our age and even older we have no equipment, historical equipment to draw upon. No, it's no kind of recent historical memory, except for this kind of very distended idea of what's involved in a civil rights struggle, mm. which is why so many people are desperate to arrive at one of two things. One is the concept of like formal legal equality. So when we have debates about equality now, it very rapidly becomes a debate about enshrining it in law. Well, if you look at the statute books, at least, I'm not saying this brings about equality in society because we because it doesn't, right? Proving the ultimate, of course, ultimately limited nature of liberal politics, bringing about formal equality doesn't create any kind of true equality, can't in a class society. But if you look at the statute books, you'd be pretty hard pressed to find, um, with one major exception, I think, which is the distinction in legal rights between citizens and non-citizens. But if we're talking about citizens of the country, you'd be very hard pressed to find uh, a, a significant legal disparity between the citizens of this country. Um, so this constant attempt to amend legislation in a way to bring about um, equality um, is purely, it's just an attempt to rerun the past over and over. We've exhausted our arsenal of what it is that you do about the world. And I suppose a secondary one is this idea of, um, you know, politics is downstream from culture, so we'll change culture, um, which is the, the only other idea that I can see on, on a widespread level on, on the contemporary left. I don't even think it's true, by the way. As, and, and this is something the right claims as well. They're trying to meddle with our culture because that will meddle with our politics. I don't think that's true. I don't think it has that effect ultimately, right? Um, I think anything that goes on in the cultural realm can transmute into the political realm in a completely controlled and neutered form. And that's what has happened. Like We've ended up with a society based on substantially the same social re relations as existed in 1980. 
but coloured and repackaged in a completely new body of language, mm. you, know, you know, about uh, inclusivity uh, and stigma and how to avoid stigma and how to create a formally inclusive language to avoid it and so on. Um, but the, the, I mean, the, the outcome of that is a much more unequal society than we had 40 years ago. So yeah, I just, uh, I think, I think that that, I think that's a major part of the, of the problem is to reuse old tools to fight a contemporary, to fight contemporary, contemporary battles that they've been proven to be completely ineffective in over and over and over again. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with a lot of that. I mean, I suppose, yeah. So I was going to say something really boring there, and then I realised I was actually going to bore myself. So I just thought, fuck it, I'll just not say it. <laughs> um, That's what happens when you consume too much content. <laughs> yeah, pumped full of content. Uh, so I think I'm going to call this episode "Content Loving Sluts." Oh my god, go for it. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to the backlash on that, but. You know, uh, we could just send it on to that guy with the syllabus. We could ask him to put this on the syllabus. Yeah, could. It's part of the as part of the discussion. I know mean, you'll probably like. Do you know what I mean to get a job in academia? You'll probably have to like make out that you are like really into porn. It's the same way like with the internet, right? Do you remember like when you were in your teens? The internet was for like for freaks and perverts. Do you know I mean, mm. you would never like openly talk about being on MSN Messenger because people would think that you were creepy. Whereas now everyone's talking about the internet. I wonder if that's what porn will be like. It already seems to be coming like that. Like rather than like porn is the sort of the thing for, you know, creeps and that's done like hidden and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Maybe like people will be like, oh no, totally, just like sitting down for dinner and watching a wee porno. I know, uh, but I think that's I think already that's gonna happen. I think that's already taking place in some corners. I remember a few years ago even, I was um uh I was watching that American YouTube show, The Young Tucks, right? Mm-hmm. And they were talking about um there were some new regulations introduced because there's controversies now. See, this is this is how something gets normalized. There's controversies now about pornography because it's been found out that some of the biggest porn sites have all this illegal porn on them, right? <laughs> I, for one, am shocked. No, no. So um, they there's now a debate about how you regulate the sector. So anyway, it was a segment about that, and they were like, "Oh, how how do you?" Um, um, safely search for porn right so that's that's then a talking point and there was a bunch of people you know in their 20s and 30s having a debate about how you ethically search for porn right I really <laughs> like we need to stop talking about this like the left are like I mean basically we should not be talking about this because whenever I hear socialists talk about sex or porn I'm just like fucking alarm bells I, I know it's terrifying did I ever tell you about in Liverpool, I went into a really old, kind of well-established um, left-wing bookshop there. And it was like, it's quite a big bookshop, really, for a kind of left-wing retailer. And it's um, it was like two-thirds just sex pattern. And I was like, what has happened? 
And there was like, do you know what I mean? The area for like trade unionism was tiny. And then there was a tiny bit of Marx. You can imagine my outrage, right? Sliver of Marx. Not sliver of Marx, right? And then just just wall to wall porn studies type stuff. You know what I mean? I was like, what has happened here? Um, I mean, I don't know. I can't help but feel. I mean, you you could you could probably come up with a Freudian theory that coherently argues that the reason the left was like so powerful in the nineteen twenties was because it was so repressed. Yeah, <laughs> it had nothing else to do with its time but kind of organize an overthrow of like states that was purely just like displaced sexual energy. Well, I mean, like, I think probably it was like that sort of the thing about like the ego being in charge. Mm. Like the ego was in the driving seat. Like the sense of self was really like in the driving seat of people's psyche. Whereas now the world is just dominated by the fucking id. Yeah. The internet is the id. Yeah. The 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 id has taken over the modern world. The internet. The left is like the super ego coming yeah. in and giving everyone a row. The left politics are sort of downstream from the id. The id is pissing into the stream. <laughs> oh. So poetic. Yeah. Um, can we end this on a, on a light note? Oh, please, please. Uh, the elections in Chile. S- say it like you were going to say it. Chile. Chile. <laughs> or, or, yeah, Chile. Tully. Yeah. Um, so this is the election of Gabriel Boric. Is that how you say his name? Boric? Boric? I think so. I think it's actually a Croatian name. Um, but yeah, so it might be Boric or something like that. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, it's just so, so obviously it follows the 2019 movement uh, and vote to to um, sort of transform the country's constitution, which is still a holdover from the kind of Pinochet uh, times. Uh, and it's, but it's also, there have been several other victories for so-called kind of pink tide uh, movements in Latin America in the last year, and even more in the last couple of years. Um, and it just strikes me as like incredible, I mean, in many ways it remains like, like the, the most politically interesting part mm-hmm. of the world system because it still has mass successful electoral and social movement kind of left-wing uh, forces um, and it's very interesting to 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 um, to think about why why that's been the case what is it about its particular context that left-wing currents remain so so kind of strong um, I mean just a, I mean, the breakdown of the, the figures also suggests some weaknesses. So uh, in Chile, for example, I mean, I think he got about 4 million votes for it. And uh, the country's population is something like 19 and a half million. So, and, you know, obviously he got a lot more votes than the, the runner-up, the, uh, the kind of the pro-Pinochet type right-winger. So... Uh, it still implies that in those countries there is a major democratic crisis, like as as there is in in Europe, for example. Mm. There is a huge area of the population that doesn't engage um, with politics. 
There was an interesting uh, article about the election on NLR's um, sidecar blog, and they were talking about how Boric could have chosen to appeal to that politically detached half of the country and draw them in. Mm. And what he did was choose to um, sort of invite a a broad tent, including sort of right-wing voters put off by the radicalism of the rights candidate into his camp. So there are already serious contradictions uh, in, in the situation, as there are in all the pink tide governments. Like so, his his coalition is it has people very far left, and you know, in the Communist Party and stuff like that. But he's in the more kind of conciliatory wing that wants to to build a kind of broad, cohesive front, including kind of kind of more liberal parts of the right and stuff like that. So I suppose we'll have to see how how that all pans out. Um, but uh, it is at least uh, a, a wee Christmas present at the end of the year. Like it still, it reminds you that there's, because those people like in Latin America have been drowned in blood decade after decade after decade for trying to improve their societies and trying to wrench them free of the American sphere of influence, the US sphere of influence, I should probably say. And they just seem to, like, there's just, there's, there's such an incredible um, resilience mm. and, and refusal uh, to be humiliated. Mm. which I just, uh, like, I find completely remarkable. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Sorry, I lost my train of thought before I even spoke there. Um, but, like, Chile is... Well, I think it was, one at one point, like, the fastest-growing, like, economically of all the Latin American countries. Um, but it's also one of the most unequal like I think it had some of the biggest neoliberal reforms um and it still doesn't really have like a proper um like social state apparatus like there's no welfare state um which I believe was Boric's main promise if he was elected was to build a, a welfare state um which I mean it's 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 not Chavez I'm sure there will be plenty of hysteria about you know the young the communist upstart you know seizing power you know the usual kind of rhetoric um but he seems like a do you know what I mean like a a social democrat mm. um, and that's not to take away from his victory at all like I think it's a really really good thing do you know what I mean like and broadly speaking um, you know, socialists need examples to look to wherever they happen of gains that are made in these types of things, especially when it's someone someone running on like that type of universalist platform. Um, you know, when I think back to like Medicare for all and like how popular that was as a policy with like the actual US electorate. Um, and there's just like <laughs> when it came to the presidential race, like there was neither candidate would would take on the mantle and so I think that you know it's a is a is a, a good thing generally speaking to show that these these um types of ideas are popular and that the people who advocate for them can take power and I mean it's the hope that kills you <laughs> <laughs> I I guess I a picture of Gabriel Boric and um, celebrating and he had on a white shirt 
like with no tie, open neck, oh, and yeah. like a navy blue jacket, and all I saw was Alexis Tupras. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, and do you know what I mean? No matter, this is the thing, like, about being involved in so- socialist politics and having, like, sort of bound yourself to that, that's that ideology or that set of ideas or, um, or however you want to you want to frame it, but you still have like this kind of like a bit of hope. Do you know what I mean? Like when there's a there's a victory, it's like okay, that that is, you know, at least one one step forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, it. There, there's kind of an eternal quality to, to, to the fights over there. You know, people get thrown in and out of power. Um, but there are also, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I think sometimes people forget the kind of Chavez example is actually quite an unusual one uh, in, in the pink tide as a whole. He was, or became, when he was in office, partly because of the pressure from the right, he responded to that by radicalising. And that's typically not what happens with left-wing governments. They, they back off. Um, when there's a fight so um, uh, Boric said um, in his speech I mean he was already saying things like we need to unify the country right um, so you can you can already see that the, the pressures of the situation uh, are driving a certain political logic I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna sort of second guess that situation because there are factors in play like the mass movement that still exists from 2019 who, who might have other ideas about things. But yeah, you can already see there's always going to be an immense pressure for conciliation. And there's always going to be a wing of any left-wing movement which is prepared for conciliation. Um, my own experience of that, you know, having seen it in my lifetime, is that it's a disaster in like 100% of, <laughs> of occasions. Um, but, you know, if you look at like uh, Lula in Brazil, He's obviously of that stripe as well. I mean, by the time the Workers' Party got kicked out of power, they weren't terribly radical anymore by any kind of stretch of the imagination. That said, I obviously still hope that um, Lula removes um, um, Bolsonaro. Uh, But, you know, at least it's still a healthier situation in Latin America, even in those countries where where the conciliatory elements are strong. It's a healthier situation than you have. I'm dreading the French presidential election because we're right back where we were with Marine Le Pen versus Macron, except now it might be Zemmour. Um, yeah, is Zemmour the one that's like more right wing than Le Pen? He's so crazy. Like he's. Is, so... is that right? Is that, yeah. that... okay? I'm... <laughs> one of Zemmour's policies, right? Is that no one in France should have a non-French first name? <laughs> I, the guy, the guy, by the way, that um, uh, who just lost in Chile, he also had. This is a thing that goes on in the right now. I think I've talked before about these super demands you get on the left sometimes now. These kind of really ultra demands, mm. um, you know, the value of which I think is a bit dubious. But you get it on the right as well. So. This guy was going to dig a huge trench between Chile and Bolivia to stop refugees coming in from Bolivia, right? It's like the wall, but not. Wall, but it's the trench. Build that trench, right? 
stupid policy, stupid idea, ridiculous. Um, the right, this is the thing as well, like the right have totally subculturalized, they've, they've totally lost any sense of like a constructive political project at all, even on their own terms. Now it's pure negation. Build walls and ditches, right? This is the thing about like... And tell people what they can call their kids. Yeah, this is, do you know what I mean? Like, imagine, right, imagine that oh, for a second that that came into force, despite the, the fact that it would be incredibly fucking boring, right? Like, it is a symbolic fucking victory for their site. What, what's it doing for you? It's nothing. You force, you force parents to, to not call their kid Muhammad in public. And instead everyone's called Jack. Hi, what is what have you what have you achieved? I mean, you know, apart from something quite miserable, I suppose the real answer is you get to humiliate someone. Um, well. that's some achievement. I mean, it's uh, it's it's powerful stuff. And these are the same guys like Zamora who go around talking about how they're leading the fight back for the greatness that is France or Western <laughs> civilization or something. The greatness <laughs> of a society. Wait, that, do you know what I mean? Is that like reactionary nostalgia? Yeah. For a time that never existed, there was never a time yeah. in France where everyone had a French name. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's just you know, what I mean, it's just at least, at least in Chile, you know, and and in other parts of Latin America, there seem to be people having a meaningful debate on at least some level about politics. In Western Europe, I mean, and Europe as a whole, it's increasingly just completely ludicrous, just nonsense. But we're and, and it's also going to be this thing of like. An ever rightward moving Macron, more and more authoritarian, more and more unpleasant. And everyone will have to rally around Macron to see off this guy who is just not on this planet. Um, and it's just such a toxic. I mean, French politics is way to the right today of where it was five years ago. Yeah. yeah you can see that in the like the discussions about like the change in language and stuff. You can imagine yeah. how that's landing. The the proving that. Um, at most what you can achieve uh, is but with this kind of rally around the liberal centre argument is uh, that you stave off the right for a couple more years at most because it's, there's a sense in which as well um, an authoritarian liberal centre you know just rearms the right in so many ways yeah, I mean, but we're seeing, we're literally seeing this in the polls in the US. Like, yeah, of course. Everyone was like, oh, Trump is gone, he's finished, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the polls last month were putting Trump to like beat Biden on like every count. You would need to ask yourself, right? Would it have been better for Trump to squeak through into a second term with a divided? House of Representatives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with all the weaknesses of, of going into your your second of your two four year terms, right? Or to have him go away for four years, spread a shit ton of conspiracy theories all over the place, reemerge with an even larger movement and more radicalized in four years' time after a four year long demonstration of how shit the Democrats are. Which one of these outcomes is actually better or worse? I'm not sure. Like, I, I think it's I think it's hard, but like that's partly because the Democrats in that position were always like I mean Biden was never going to be able to deliver what he um, said he would deliver on a number of things. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like even like the kind of 
the things that were made, like moral prerogatives, like um, the all the kids in cages stuff, like you know, children at the border, or, like de- detained, um, asylum seekers, all of that. Like he's he's not, he, his approval rating with young people is in the toilet, mm-hmm. and the Democrats like always rely on that vote. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Kamala's are worse. Yeah, no, I, I always assumed that, that it was Biden was going to be a stepping stone for Kamala, but yeah. he seems to be holding on, eh? <laughs> still going. Yeah, he is. Um, I think he is becoming more incoherent, but no, he's, he still seems to be going. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's another, that'll be another interesting the midterm. Yeah, let's keep it, let's keep it on the, the happy note of Chile. Yeah, Chile. Um, so yeah, no, but a good a good way to end the year there. A little bit of hope, little bit of season's hope. Beautiful. Well, we hope everyone has a lovely Christmas and a nice new year. Um, if you get the chance, please go and check out our new Contour website. Um, it's had a bit of a facelift. And you can also get extra Contourcast content um, and lots of other things if you sign up to our Patreon um, and all the information about that's available on the website. That's me done my sales pitch. Cheers. Bye.